Clearly, head and neck cancer is a prime example of the critical need for an interdisciplinary approach, including the ENT surgeon, radiation oncologist, and medical oncologist. I met with Dr. Wally Kern, group chairman of the RTOG, for his perspective on where we are and where we're headed with this disease. Dr. Kern began our conversation by describing the usual clinical platform in which these patients are treated. Most patients with head and neck cancer are first referred to otolaryngologists or surgeons for biopsy and evaluation. And location and stage of disease really determines the algorithm. For most patients who have cancers around the lips and the mouth and the tongue, the initial approach is typically surgical removal with best preservation of function. For those tumors that are a little further back, meaning the back of the tongue, the base of tongue, the pharynx or the larynx, we've seen over the past two decades that there's really been a clear demonstration that a non-operative approach with both functional and organ preservation has resulted really in just as good a survival rate and perhaps a better quality of life than surgery as primary approach. And the way that's mainly been accomplished is by integrating best radiation and best chemotherapy techniques. And head and neck surgeons, otolaryngologists around the country have learned that the non-operative approach with chemotherapy and radiation has really been a tremendous paradigm shift for many but not all patients with laryngeal cancer, pharyngeal cancer, and base of tongue cancer. The same paradigm shift hasn't occurred in oral cavity cancers. It may in the future, but for right now, probably the best functional results are really with good surgical technique and then post-operative management as appropriate. For an early stage oral cavity lesion, often surgery alone is sufficient therapy. Many patients with oral cavity cancers have a substantial tobacco history, their risk of a second malignancy might be as high as their risk of a recurrence. And the most common second malignancy is often lung cancer. So those people need to be staged for lung cancer and other cancers in the future. For an early stage larynx cancer, such as a relatively common stage of the so-called T1, N0, M0 cancer of the true vocal cord, Uh, Biopsy followed by small field radiation alone is usually curative and usually resulting in excellent voice quality and quality of life. Once you start getting into N positive or a higher T stage in the larynx, pharynx, or base of tongue or tonsil, you really are talking about probably the best approach being a combination of chemotherapy and radiation with really there being pretty clear evidence that the best tumor control comes with the concurrent administration of chemotherapy and radiation, with the pivotal trials mainly using cisplatin-based regimens. The additional therapy that often comes with that, based on extent of nodal disease, is a selective neck dissection in conjunction with the chemoradiation. But we've really seen some excellent paradigm shifts. The key study, obviously, in this was the VA laryngeal trial led by Dr. Greg Wolf from University of Wisconsin, who's a really well-regarded head and neck surgeon who really demonstrated there was not a single percentage of survival loss by offering patients with advanced laryngeal cancer 
a chance for voice preservation, laryngeal preservation, as opposed to laryngectomy as initial management. Since that landmark study, most studies since that time have really just refined the best chemoradiation regimen. In that trial, it was chemotherapy followed by radiation. In a subsequent trial run by the RTOG, we demonstrated that laryngeal preservation is higher if you give the cisplatinum during the radiation rather than before. But once again, survival rates were identical. Again, in sort of a non-protocol setting, what about the issue of induction chemotherapy followed by chemoradiation as opposed to chemoradiation straight out? Right. So up until the last two or three years, that had fallen out of favor as not showing some particular substantial benefit. But several trials, and most notably a well-designed phase three trial led by Marshall Posner at Dana-Farber, have shown that a docetaxel-based induction regimen given prior to a radiation and relatively non-intense concurrent chemotherapy regimen is superior compared to radiation in this relatively non-intense concurrent regimen. So it really makes many people realize that there may be a role for induction therapy again. It should not be done instead of concurrent therapy, except for those patients where concurrent therapy is just not feasible. But clearly, Marshall's study does show that for a group of patients that he conducted a well-designed randomized trial, there was a benefit. What that trial doesn't tell us is, was that necessarily superior to a more intense day one chemo radiation regimen, as is in RTOG trials. But there is such a trial that's ongoing at this time, and we'll know the result in a few years. Can you talk about that study? So that's a study in which the docetaxel-based regimen is preceding a chemo radiation regimen as opposed to a full-dose platinum radiation regimen day one. So it's looking at a core of a chemo radiation regimen that's a little more the phase three standard out of both the European and the RTOG trials. Has docetaxel been used as part of concurrent chemoradiation? Yes, it has. And it appears there's been some very promising results with that. It can be given in a weekly schedule or an acute three-week regimen. And either way, the complete response rates, the progression-free survival certainly look very reasonable. Can you talk a little bit about the side effects and toxicity issues of induction therapy as well as chemoradiation therapy? So with induction therapy, they are the same toxicities one might see with any full-dose Q3 taxane or platinum-based regimen, hematologic depression, stomatitis, risk of infection. Chemoradiation to head and neck may be one of the most challenging cancer therapies any patient goes through because in addition to the effects of the chemotherapy, you also have the enhancement of the radiation effect by the chemotherapy. So grade 3 mucositis is a very predictable side effect. Most patients who are getting substantial portions of their mucosa radiated really do need a peg prior to the uh, initiation of this. It's really not a situation where a feeding tube should be given only after a certain amount of weight loss. It really has to be considered a part of the approach. One of the concerns early on in the chemoradiation era was would such intense regimens result in radiation treatment delays, which we know are deleterious to tumor control. And I think most people have learned that with the feeding tube 
and with outstanding supportive care, most patients can get through the radiation without substantial treatment interruptions. We find that sometimes giving a patient a three-day weekend, which really doesn't extend the treatment time, once or twice during a seven-week course can really be a godsend for the patient and is not even considered a minor protocol violation if a patient happens to be enrolled on a trial. What's the variation in how long these patients generally have their feeding tubes? Most of them you really start looking at, you know, depending on whether there's a functional problem with swallowing that was tumor-related, but if it's all mucositis-related, you really can be thinking about getting it out at perhaps three months after therapy. But again, you really have to see the oral intake at an acceptable caloric intake before you do that. Many times physicians will keep the tube in to make sure that there remains enough swallowing. Many of my colleagues now are saying that to really be reasonably recovered from an intense chemoradiation regimen for stage 4 head neck cancer, you're talking about a recovery that is perhaps 8 months or longer. used to be that people would say, oh, your mucositis has gone away in 6 weeks. We really are seeing a much longer period of recovery. And I think one thing that's important for all oncologists is to really sit down and prepare the patient and the family for that. We don't want to scare them from taking effective therapy, but we want to understand that the management on the physician and the nursing part is not over at the end of therapy. It really can continue for months. What about amifostine? So amifostine is a thiol derivative which has radiation-protective effects. It has FDA approval as a means of reducing grade 3 or worse xerostomia. It's very clear in most of the studies that have been done that it has no substantial effect on mucositis. But since xerostomia is a long-term significant and often permanent effect, it's not insubstantial. The pivotal trials done with amifostine involve daily administration of amifostine, People found, as well as patients, found the daily intravenous doses to be somewhat cumbersome from the point of view of side effects as well as administration. A subcutaneous route of administration subsequently was adopted and more widely accepted. So right now, its use exists. I do think that people find it complicating to be giving that on top of an intense chemoradiation regimen right now. But I think for those patients getting radiation alone, it's commonly offered, or perhaps those getting a less intense chemoradiation. What a lot of people are also looking for is, are there any agents that really can reduce the mucositis associated with chemoradiation and head neck cancer? We just have not had a positive trial for the agents. There's a KGF-targeting therapy, which is in a phase three trial in RTOG, Palifermin, which has now an indication for reducing mucositis and bone marrow transplant, and has some promising phase two data in both head, neck, and lung cancer. Is there a correlation between mucositis and xerostomia? Well, the correlation is that the large radiation fields, which might cause one, will also cause the other. Bad mucositis does not predict bad xerostomia, though. What do we know about the mechanism of action of amifostine? So what we know about it is that it really is a free radical scavenger and reduces the free radical effect in normal tissues. Now, since many of us know that the free radical effect of ionizing radiation against a tumor 
is really what we're desiring in anti-tumor therapy, there was a great concern that amifostine might be tumor protective. Study after study after study, both preclinical and clinical, have shown no tumor protection. So I think that's really been put away. The thing that makes sense about the mechanism of action of amifostine is every radio-labeled study of amifostine shows selective uptake in the parotid glands. And it's really the parotid glands that you want to protect as well as the minor salivary glands as it relates to mucositis. What it really does is prevents DNA damage. And we know that a dose of 30 gray or more really can cause permanent dryness and permanent malfunction of the cells in the salivary glands. So what you really are doing is you're looking at a dose-modifying effect. Most people calculate a dose-modifying effect of about 2.5. And if what that means is, in effect, you reduce the parotid dose from 70 gray down to whatever 1 over 2.5 is down to about 25 gray, then that's a good result. What most people now believe is that a better strategy for reducing xerostomia is IMRT, or intensity modulated radiation. There was a randomized trial shown at ASCO in 2006 from Hong Kong, which randomized patients with uh, moderate early stage nasopharyngeal cancer, IMRT versus conventional radiation, no amifostine, no chemotherapy, with a statistically significant improvement in salivary function in the IMRT patients. So the advantage of IMRT is you can hopefully define a field where you set radiation dose constraints in the parotid gland, and if you can do that because the tumor's not right there, you probably have a longer and better effect on the xerostomia issue. Let's talk a little bit about cetuximab and head and neck cancer. Cetuximab is a monoclonal antibody which targets the epidermal growth factor receptor. Work done at University of Pittsburgh as well as within the RTOG demonstrated that those head-neck tumors which overexpress epidermal growth factor receptor have a worse prognosis in terms of recurrence and survival than those that don't overexpress to the same extent. So EGFR is a highly relevant target for head-neck cancer. Cetuximab was studied early on against head and neck cancer, first in a phase 1-2 pilot study at the University of Alabama at Birmingham by Francisco Robert and others, showing that it could be given on a weekly basis during a course of radiation, was well tolerated and looked like it had promising results. That led to an international phase 3 study in which patients with moderate risk squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck were randomized between radiation alone and radiation and weekly cetuximab. That result was published last year in the New England Journal by James Bonner and all, showing a statistically significant improvement in survival favoring the cetuximab-containing arm as well as in disease control. What was very interesting is the magnitude of benefit was almost identical to that that we saw when we looked at radiation cisplatinum versus radiation alone. But the difference was we did not have the enhancement of the mucositis, stomatitis, and local regional toxicity that you get with cisplatinum as well as the hematologic toxicity. So this was a very exciting trial. It was conducted at a time where many patients who subsequently might have received cisplatinum-based chemotherapy did not or were not obliged to perhaps at that time. 
So it really allows us to really think of another tool in our armamentarium against head and neck cancer. Can you talk a little bit more about the Bonner study in terms of what the eligibility and design of the study was? Right. So it was a one-to-one phase three design study. Patients could have basically either stage two, three, or four head and neck cancer. Some patients were high-risk patients who were resected. Other patients had unresected disease but they, in general, did not have bulky bilateral fixed lymph nodes. But the overlap in eligibility between, let's say, that study and the typical phase 3 RTOG trial of stage 3 to 4 head and neck cancer was fairly substantial, but a slightly more intermediate rather than high-risk local regional head and neck cancer. The median survival, based on the way the curves went, was substantially higher. It was about, I believe, a 50% increase in median survival. The absolute survival benefit out at a few years was statistically significant with a good hazard ratio. What do we know about the potential synergy between cetuximab and radiation therapy? Yeah, we know it from preclinical studies that there's great synergy, and it was demonstrated in this study And we've seen in some pilot data elsewhere that there's been synergy elsewhere. But clearly, the benefit of targeting EGFR in conjunction with radiation was well demonstrated by investigators at MD Anderson and University of Colorado and University of Wisconsin in laboratory studies. As far as toxicity goes, the only toxicity that was substantially greater in the cetuximab-containing arm really was the skin rash that we know is a class effect from EGFR targeting agents, perhaps some more diarrhea, but was not a greater increase in radiation treatment interruptions, nor was there meaningful hematologic toxicity. Can you talk a little bit about your own experience with the rash from cetuximab in terms of prevention and management and what happens with these patients? I think what people have learned is early intervention is really an important approach and early intervention involves detection, antibiotics, as well as moisturizers. And I think recently more and more people realize that one of the things that makes a patient most symptomatic from an EGFR rash is really the sense of dryness that comes with it. So we've sort of learned to use very kind of generous doses of moisturizers on these, and they are tremendous. So basically Benadryl, moisturizers and early use of topical and then systemic antibiotics and not being afraid to use your dermatologist if you need to. You know, we've also seen that there's been some regions of the country where the cetuximab rash appears to be more of a problem than other parts of the country. We're not in one of those zones, fortunately, but I don't think people quite understand that as well. You mentioned EGFR, and this has been a big debate going on, colon cancer also. What do we know about EGFR in response to cetuximab in head and neck? Yeah, so less than we know about it in colorectal cancer. Keep in mind that most of our experience is with radiation, and I don't think we have, from the Bonner study, the extent of correlation with extent of rash and survival or tumor control. So that's still being studied. We have seen it be a effect correlating with response in non-small cell as well as colorectal. I just don't have that data in head and neck cancer, but I'm sure we'll be seeing it over the next few years. The real question that I hear again and again is, so which agent or which regimen do I use? Do I use chemoradiation or do I use chemocetuximab 
or do I do what oncologists generally do and just make the full pot of soup and add cetuximab to chemoradiation? So without having a final answer to that, one example of data we need is what's at least the safety and the early data of chemoradiation and cetuximab. The most mature data came from a medium-sized phase two study out of Sloan Kettering in which they treated people with their altered fractionation regimen of radiation, a pretty aggressive concurrent chemoradiation, cetuximab. We saw a few years ago at ASCO that this study actually closed early out of concern of some early deaths. However, when a mature manuscript was published in Journal of Clinical Oncology last year by Dr. Sue et al., we actually saw that those early deaths probably were not treatment or cetuximab-related, and the absolute survival, even accounting for those early deaths, and the tumor control was really outstanding. So again, single institution, perhaps somewhat selected patients, but encouraging data. RTOG has completed accrual to a randomized phase two study in which one arm contained radiation docetaxel and cetuximab, the other arm had radiation and cisplatinum and cetuximab. We did not see any toxicity that made us feel we had to close the study early, but we don't have the final results. We are about a third of the way accrued in an RTOG study that's RT platinum versus RT platinum cetuximab. And I get questioned many times about why don't you have a third arm of RT cetuximab? And the answer is we initially proposed that, but because that would have been an equivalence to platinum in terms of the design and really looking for a reduction in toxicity, it would have tripled the accrual and it would have really gotten it out of the feasible range of patient numbers. Off-study, I'll tell you the guidelines that I and some of my colleagues think about, and that is for a patient who has a marginal indication for adding systemic therapy to radiation, but for whom you want to do more than radiation, I recommend cetuximab, clearly better tolerated. For an older patient, cetuximab's clearly better tolerated with radiation. And for the patients with a very advanced disease, which would not have been included in the Bonner study, I would use chemotherapy if they're patients who could tolerate it. That middle zone is really the challenging group. And I think that's the kind of group that if a doc has a good discussion with a patient or family, they want to really go for a regimen where there's phase two but not phase three data, I think chemoradiation cetuximab is very reasonable. Let's talk a little bit about radiation therapy for head and neck cancer. Can you talk about some of the new advances and to what extent they're being utilized right now in the community setting? My experience over the past few decades is there's probably greater variability in the delivery of radiotherapy for head and neck cancer than almost any disease site in the body. There are training programs that really take very different philosophies on what nodal areas you treat, what margin you put on a tumor, how you set up a patient. And the new technologies don't change that, but they make the whole paradigm of treatment more complicated. Intensity modulated radiation has revolutionized the delivery of treatment to patients with head and neck cancer, perhaps more than any other disease in the body. And it requires tremendous attention to detail on the part of a radiation oncologist. What a radiation oncologist has to do to be good at it is not only 
be able to define where the tumor is, but where the high-risk and moderate-risk lymph node stations are. But it even involves radiation oncologists understanding how to define areas where you want to have normal tissue avoidance, what dose is safe to give to the lips, what dose is safe to give to the nostrils. And when we just did lateral opposed fields, we didn't have to think about that. But now that we're doing treatment from a sort of a 360 degree of possibility, you have to decide how much you're willing to give the brainstem, the posterior fossa, and so forth, which really has made it exciting but very challenging. But right now, with a dedicated team of radiation oncologists, radiologists, surgeon, physicists, and a treatment team, it's really possible to give effective and potentially curative therapy with less morbidity than we could a decade ago. And that's really the bottom line. And it also allows for a more synergistic integration with chemotherapy as well. What do we know about the quality of radiation therapy that's given for head and neck cancer in the community? I think it's probably variable, and this is probably one area where the variability really has to do with the experience of the physicians and the team. Clearly, there's evidence in many diseases that the more experience a team has, the more effective they are. I think this is clearly the case there. There are some really outstanding community teams, but if you have a community oncology practice of two or three or four people, My advice would really be to get one of them or no more than one or two to really focus on a disease like head and neck cancer because you really do need to be dedicated to take the time to really learn. And there's some tremendous work done by Dr. Cliff Chow down at MD Anderson in defining seminars and contouring. There is some interesting software being developed that allows auto-contouring of normal structures And these are really some of the steps that need to go forward to allow more and more people to do this at the highest level of possibility. When you compare the therapy that's given by somebody who, for example, specializes in this in a tertiary center to someone out in the community, maybe without as much experience, is the difference more in the toxicity, anti-tumor effect that's projected, or both? I don't know the answer to that, and I don't think anyone studied it. One interesting report we put out a few years ago, Neil, was that in order to do an IMRT plan within an RTOG head-neck field, each center, whether community or university-based, has to take a dosimetry phantom. So it's a phantom with dosimeters in it at both what are considered hypothetical normal tissue sites and the tumor are given a particular radiation plan to do You execute it, and then you ship the phantom back to Houston to the Radiologic Physics Center. And we were surprised that in the first run-through, even with anonymous centers, some of which were high-quality community centers, some of which were high-quality university centers, the results were not very good. And we were somewhat disappointed at the radiation dose coverage for many of those phantoms. So we've got a lot to learn. And these were some of the very best and most enthusiastic centers doing the first run-through on the Phantom. So there's a lot to learn, and I think we'll continue to learn it. But I think if a physician in radiation oncology wants to be good at it, he or she needs to spend a lot of time, go to the courses, understand contouring, and really take the business pretty seriously. What about the issue of the patient who has head and neck cancer but also has 
other comorbidities. I think a lot of us are used to thinking about people who have problems with alcohol abuse, malnutrition, heavy smoking histories. How much does that factor into treatment? And what are we seeing in terms of sort of the face of head and neck cancer today as opposed to 10 years ago in that regard? Yeah, so those are challenging medical as well as social issues for such patients. And clearly, uh, continued use of tobacco has been many times associated with a poorer outcome for patients with this type of tumor. And anything that physicians can do to help patients with pharmacologic as well as social tools to end smoking before therapy begins are going to help the patient. Ditto for alcohol. What I think we're seeing, though, and I'm certainly seeing in our practice, is the profile of a head neck cancer as being a older gentleman with all those problems is really just one face of head neck cancer. We're seeing, I think, more and more people who really don't have any history of or substantial history of tobacco or alcohol use. We're seeing more younger women. We're seeing, I guess, more demographic diversity, I think, in patients. I can't tell you why, but it is something we're seeing in the enrollment and trials and elsewhere. What we hope to see is also a stronger advocacy on behalf of such patients. And we're seeing that, I think, just in early stages. But it's a disease, certainly, that needs advocacy as much as any disease because both the tumor and its treatment can be both disabling and disfiguring, and any support we can give to patients who suffer from this will really be tremendous. You know, my father passed away a couple years ago from a version of head-neck cancer, and just seeing him telling me that he didn't want to eat in public because of the disfigurement and the other problems really bring home some of the issues you're dealing with with this sort of thing. Did that experience change your perspective as a clinician or as a researcher? It was probably more in a personal nature than professionally, but certainly seeing it from the point of view of the family, which, as you know, all of us have done at many points in our lives, does bring home the issues. But I think seeing someone disabled to the extent or their perception of disability was really probably the strongest personal lesson and seeing him actually affected to the point where he actually refused to go out in public because of his own perception of his image, whereas I think other people felt less of a problem with his appearance than he himself did. That was probably the most poignant difficulty. What about the sort of of end-of-life issues that occur in patients with head and neck cancer, the role of hospice, and what are some of the key end-of-life palliative issues that come up? Right. So... For patients with head and neck cancer, end-of-life issues are particularly difficult as it relates to things like ability to swallow, pain control, and in many times patients suffer local regional recurrence, which really can be quite symptomatic. Patients often have trachs and have lost weight, so hospice can be very helpful in that situation. Patients typically uh, visceral metastases most commonly are usually to the lung if they're anywhere. So it's really often a combination of local regional symptoms that are the greatest problem. Let's talk a little bit about some of the major trials that are going going right now, particularly within the RTOG, looking at head and neck cancer. I mentioned the major phase three trial for unresected head and neck cancer, which is chemo-RT plus or minus cetuximab. We also believe some of the new oral agents 
will be promising in conjunction with radiation or chemoradiation and have a proposal which was reviewed last week at the NCI adding uh, oral mixed VEGF EGFR targeting agent AZ6474 to chemoradiation. And we hope that will open later in 2008. Within Europe, there's actually a randomized phase two trial looking at radiation chemo versus radiation cetuximab. So it's not powered to show an absolute equivalency in tumor control. But if we see less toxicity and more or less equal disease-free survival and survival, that will be a useful clue that cetuximab and radiation are competitive with chemoradiation. Now you mentioned 6474 when that seems to be popping up in a lot of tumors right now. And that agent, I guess, theoretically is a combination of an anti-EGFR and an anti-VEGF? Correct. Yeah, probably the VEGF effect's a little stronger. But, you know, there's promising data, as you know, in lung cancer, and there's preclinical data supporting its use with radiation. So we think it's one of several agents that could be promising in conjunction with radiation of the head and neck. What about bevacizumab and head and neck cancer? The RTOG has a study looking at this. What do we know about it? In RTOG, we're looking at it in conjunction with chemoradiation for nasopharyngeal cancer. We know that right now, nasopharyngeal cancer with IMRT and chemotherapy, we get pretty good control of the primary tumor and the nodal disease. So our biggest challenge is distant metastases. We know it's often a highly vascular tumor. So we have initiated such a trial. It's a phase two trial. We do have international participation, including colleagues in Hong Kong, which are participating, which is quite exciting. And we'd love to see a promising enough result, particularly in reduction in distant metastases, that we could move that forward to a phase three trial. There's also salvage data with erlotinib and bevacizumab in head neck cancer failures after radiation or surgery, which looks promising. What about management of recurrent disease? Very tough, really three philosophical approaches. There are operable recurrences, and that really should be the first approach whenever a patient has such a problem. For example, if someone had laryngeal preservation therapy and actually has a failure in their larynx, some patients can be cured with uh, laryngectomy at that time. The same can happen in the pharynx and in the oral cavity. So surgical salvage really should be the first approach to tumor recurrence when possible. The second approach to consider is re-irradiation, which both the University of Chicago group and RTOG have shown can be done. We often do it in conjunction with chemotherapy or some sort of systemic agent. And then the final approach is systemic therapy, whether it's cisplatinum, ataxane, cetuximab, erlotinib, bevacizumab. Results have a modest response rate and not a long survival. But we do have some randomized data looking at cetuximab in this stage of disease, which is sufficiently compelling that the FDA did approve cetuximab as an alternative for the management of recurrent disease. Can you talk a little bit about that study? That was a study done in ECOG by Barbara Burness and others, which is a randomized study in which cetuximab was looked at alone and in combination with cisplatinum. And with response rate as the main criteria, it met its guidelines of a satisfactory response rate. Response rates in many studies previously have been in the 10-15% range, and they were higher in this study. 
One area that I just want to mention for completeness is there really are some pretty exciting microsurgical techniques that really make the curative management of many head and neck cancer patients much better. Nerve preserving approaches, laser therapy, and plastics and reconstruction. Probably the progress that's impressed me the most are in those tumors in which there's need for craniofacial surgery tumors in the maxillary sinus, tumors in the ethmoid sinuses, some of the unusual tumors there. I've seen my surgical colleagues go in and actually do endoscopic surgery for a section of large tumors, and you go in to see the patient the same day in surgery, they don't even have a single suture. They have a little cotton in their nose, and that's it. So it's really some amazing things that are being done with image-guided surgery for the head and neck cancer patient which really has reduced the morbidity and mortality of surgery quite a bit. And I think the final thing that we're going to see is that there'll be functional imaging-based radiation in which we'll really be looking at PET scan and some of the other functional imaging to really determine where we do so-called radiation dose painting to give the highest dose in those areas where the tumor is most avid. We were talking before about quality control in terms of radiation therapy in the community. What about in terms of surgery and the type of surgery that's performed in these patients? Again, both from the point of view of effectiveness in terms of cancer surgery and secondly in terms of morbidity and complications. Yeah, well, I think probably more than any approach to this disease, the community otolaryngologists really refer the complicated head-neck cancer surgery cases to the tertiary centers at this point. And really, I think it's just very difficult to keep an active community-based practice of, let's say, ENT going and at the same time do six-hour big head-neck cancer procedures going on. So I think we see regional referral. I think that's good for the patients, and I think we'll continue to see it There is the subspecialty of head and neck oncology surgery for which there's certified fellowships at places like MD Anderson and Sloan Kettering and elsewhere. And I think the trend of the future is probably for regional centers of excellence for surgery for these types of patients. We've seen a big shift in clinical research, particularly in breast cancer, looking at translational research, neoadjuvant treatment, and particularly tissue correlation studies proteomics, gene arrays, et cetera. What about head and neck cancer in terms of that type of work? I think we've seen a nice growth in that, and one of the reasons it's possible is we obviously have available tissue where there's lymph nodes or accessible tumor through the oral cavity or nasal passage. So with the support of some spores in head and neck cancer, where there's one at University of Pittsburgh, there's now a new one at Emory, There's one at University of Michigan and Hopkins and MD Anderson. There's a number of spores which really have based their work on tissue correlation with outcome. What we've also seen in the RTOG is we have probably the largest multicenter tissue bank for head and neck cancer, and Kianang and a number of outstanding investigators, Stuart Wong and others, have really done some outstanding work looking at markers and outcome. Anything right now in terms of markers and outcome that looks promising specifically? I think probably the work that's still most interesting is really in the EGFR, not unlike in lung cancer, 
we don't see the same information about mutations and correlation with outcome that we do in lung cancer, but it's really being queried in the same way. And I think we'll get a stronger picture of that over the next year or two. The other thing to say is that the number of groups that are doing head neck cancer research is down. Right now, among the American cooperative groups, RTOG has a portfolio and ECOG does, but that's really it. The other groups are not involved. So I just would encourage everyone to look for trials for their patients We also have a challenge for looking for chemopreventative agents because the retinoids really didn't pan out, and we did some large studies, but they didn't pan out. So any opportunity you have to have your patients participate in trials really will move this field forward because we have had a lot of progress in the last two decades, and the further progress will be through the trials.